In the past week, Brussels has put on maximum security alert. Terrorism attacks in Mali leave 19 people dead. An Israeli spy, Jonathan Pollard, has been released by the US after 30 years. It's Sunday the 22nd of October, and you're listening to the Oxford International Relations Society podcast, The Beacon. So maybe we could just start with a general question of, of your opinion on the health of the UN as an organisation in, in its holistic form at the moment. Do you, still, do you still see it as credible, as fit for purpose? I think the UN, especially the small and medium-sized states, is, is the venue to deal with global problems. Mm-hmm. They cannot be part of the G7, G8 or G20. So for them... The, the United Nations is the only body that really matters to deal with global problems. And uh, so, yes, I think it is, from that perspective alone, very, very credible. And moreover, it is those small and medium-sized states that are the, going to be the most likely defenders of principles and institutions that have been developed in the last 70 years. Another remark I have is that it is quite amazing that no member state has wanted to leave the UN. Mm. Moreover, every member state pays its dues, its assessments. So I think that shows that member states themselves still believe in the UN as an important institution. Thank you, thank you. But with with regard to that, so if we if we specialise in the Security Council and we look at the role of the P5, to what extent do you think that frustrates the ability of, of smaller states to exercise their full membership of the UN as, a, as an organisation in principle when they seem to be um, a sort of Orwellian equal, some more equal than others? Yeah, no, it is a bit of a feudal system right now, no doubt. You know, the permanent members have privileges that uh, that um, cannot easily be defended from a democratic perspective. On the other hand, you, you have to realize that some of these biggest powers probably would not be in the UN if they hadn't had that power. So what I like is... Right now, there are initiatives to reduce some of that veto power, for instance. I'm not sure if you are aware, but uh, the ACT Group, which is 25 countries, has recently developed a code of conduct which would be applicable to all members on the Security Council uh, now and future members. Mm -hmm. And it basically says that they would refrain from voting against a credible resolution that deals uh, with preventing or stopping genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. And so far, 106 countries have signed on. That is truly amazing. So, and it is small and medium-sized states that are sending a strong message to the permanent Mm -hmm. five that they have to clean up their act, that they're becoming very, very frustrated. That's, that's interesting, but my, my concern, again, is the lack of enforcement powers. So this is a fantastic resolution. It's a, it's a fantastic display of, of solidarity and of power among the smaller and medium-sized states. But do you think they'll be able to coerce the P5 if there does emerge a, a situation in the future where a country that is typically protected by one of those members is engaging in such crimes? 
uh, you know, obviously, um, uh, such problems will continue. Yes, uh, the Security Council is far from ideal, and and if you have a permanent member that will protect a tyrant, very little can be done. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about that. But on the other hand, uh, the Security Council did refer the situation of Sudan to the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bashir was indicted. Bashir went to South Africa, went to other African countries, and local NGOs immediately uh, brought this fact to the attention of the court, saying that the national legislation uh, means that they should send him to The Hague. Mm -hmm. And, And although it hasn't happened, this again is another strong message yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that um, some of the world's worst um, dictators or, or criminals will be held accountable. Yes, it's not an ideal world yet, but I think we are moving in that direction. So in that respect, it, it looks like the, the role of these states thus far has been changing the norms and changing the parameters of the dialogue. Would you agree that that's a fair assessment? Yes, I think uh, small and medium-sized States are going to be the prime defenders of what has been achieved in the UN over 70 mm-hmm. years. And with the structure of the Security Council itself, so if we'd like to see a, a more central role for the smaller and medium-sized states, do you think that'll be reflected in structural changes in the future? Well, as you know, Security Council reform is pretty much debated, uh, dominated by the expansion debate. Mm-hmm. There are a number of countries that feel entitled to permanent seats. Uh, As you know, they are the group of four, Germany, Brazil, India, and Japan, and two African states. Right now, Nigeria and South Africa are pushing the hardest. These six countries believe that only when they would have elite status to... Uh, would uh, would you get a more fair and representative council. Personally, I think having more elite members... uh, Uh, will not make it more democratic. Mm -hmm. Uh, For instance, India, in an effort to cozy up to Russia, has recently said that it would be non-interventionalist too. (laughs) So so that gives you an idea that that additional permanent members wouldn't necessarily um, uh, improve uh, uh, action. I, if you like, I could talk about what is a more feasible option. Oh, that would be fantastic. Any impressions that you have as to what reforms would be favourable would be fantastic. Well, ever since the 1990s, Security Council reform has been on the agenda of the General Assembly, and immediately the options that came to the table were expansion with permanent seats, new mm-hmm. additional permanent seats, or with just non-permanent seats but also with the option of having longer-term renewable seats. Now, the advantage of longer-term renewable seats is that other member states can hold those countries who get those seats accountable. Mm -hmm. If if they do a really bad job, they can be voted out. Because to me, the problem with permanency is permanency. You can never, ever hope to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. And if 50 years from now... Other countries are equally powerful as those that are picked now for permanent seats. Will you just add more and more every time? And then the Security Council obviously isn't a manageable body anymore. So, yeah, from my perspective, longer term and renewable seats is the way to go. 
And with regard to renewable seats and things like that, I know, I know we're not really speaking about the Human Rights Council today, but if we look at the current membership there, I mean, over the last couple of years, Saudi Arabia has been a member, Venezuela, China, none of these states have exactly stellar records with regard to human rights. How do you think we could avoid that politicization from um, coming into to Security Council renewable seats? Well, that's what I just said. You can vote them off. But none of the states... And, have, but and you have... They will be elected seats. Mm -hmm. So presumably uh, the countries with the most relative power, like the G4 countries and Nigeria and South Africa, would be elected. Um, so I, I don't think... There is a risk of Sudan being getting a longer-term seat, mm -hmm. or or North Korea. So I think those concerns are a little bit exaggerated. It's not like the Human Rights Council, but as I told you, I, I don't have a great deal of expertise. I was around when it was established, and I, I realized that the periodic reviews are a big improvement. Mm -hmm. But that's, yeah, certainly, that's about all I know. Okay, no, no worries at all. I guess it's just the question of regional distribution. And if I suppose there are far more members of the Human Rights Council than perhaps there would be at the Security Council. Sure. I'm not sure what kind of size you envisage for, for the kind of renewable member options. Is that something that would change year on year or...? Would change what? Um, kind of year to year, depending on the situation oh, externally. No, 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 or... no, no. I mean, these renewable seats would probably be anywhere from between four to 12 years. Okay. And, and the advantage is because right now the elected members, so the non-permanent members, are elected for two-year terms. Yeah. And by the time they're up to speed, they have to pack up. And yeah, that's true. They, they cannot be re-elected. Mm -hmm. uh, so so if, if you have longer-term seats that are renewable, you could create some kind of permanency but still get rid of them if they perform badly. Okay, brilliant. So it's just more that, that option of, of showing states where the door is, should they... Accountability matters. Yes, yeah, exactly. And could we talk a little bit more about the changes to, to the mandate of the Security Council over the past 70 years? I mean, if we look at um, how it's changed with regard to humanitarian intervention, with peacekeeping and peace enforcing, and perhaps also the responsibility to protect, um, kind of just your, your impressions on those matters and how they've enlarged or how the Security Council has come well, you up You know, the Security Council has even tried to add climate change to its agenda because it okay. is a security issue. But when it tries to, add, to, to encroach on issues that are part of the General Assembly, there is a major counter-push okay. from key players in the General Assembly. Um, now, the, the problem with the responsibility of, to protect, and I'm very much in favour of this norm, is that there remains enormous opposition, especially from developing countries that are more powerful, mm -hmm. you know, a country like India or Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, they, they let this consensus decision uh, happen in 2005, but ever since they have said that they feel that this wasn't a genuinely negotiated uh, process. And... Um, uh, Obviously, uh, 
the UN was established to prevent conflict between states, but there's now so much violence mm. within states. And, it, it, you know, when it causes uh, large amounts of refugees, neighboring countries, and, and even further start to suffer uh, from the problems associated with it. So it's, it is likely that the Security Council will deal, will have to deal more with uh, the notion of responsibility to protect, mm -hmm. uh, to protect civilians when their country uh, doesn't. With the Security Council's capacity, how, how do you think that is in relation to the problems that it has to deal with in terms of the resources that it has at its disposal? Well, it is interesting that peacekeeping operations expenses have gone up and up and that the whole of the membership hasn't really been too perturbed about mm -hmm. this compared to the regular budget, um, peacekeeping operations have doubled uh, every decade, I think. Um, but, but there are such silly problems that for you cannot find enough helicopters for peacekeeping mm -hmm. operations. So yeah. eventually, I think, from a reform perspective, there should probably be a rapid deployment force with sufficient equipment to deal uh, with the problems immediately and mm -hmm. then you can try and create enough political will and, and get more support from member states but there needs to be able uh, there needs to be a rapid response mm -hmm. option okay great and just if we ground this this discussion in a more practical term perhaps if we look at the situation with with Daesh, with the conflict in Syria, with what's happening in Yemen as well. Could you perhaps talk to us a little bit about the responses of the Security Council and how you think they may have been different had certain reforms been enacted? I know that's a very broad question, so if, if you'd like a couple of minutes or, or perhaps to defer until later, then do feel free. Well, I think... I think Non-intervention is very high on the agenda of countries like Russia, China, and developing countries. And I don't see an easy way that that can be overcome. On the other hand, now with the situation in Syria, the ripple effect, the repercussions mm -hmm. also throughout Europe is becoming more and more obvious. So... And the problem of Islam radicalism is probably of concern to China and Russia as well. So it is not impossible to think that maybe some kind of force sooner or later, international force sooner mm -hmm. or later, will be established to, 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 to take over this relatively small group. Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much for, for everything that we've discussed so far. In general, it seems to me that, that you're hopeful about the reforms and, and the prospects for the Security Council in the face of, of changes to the world. I, I think the, the Security Council will not be easily reformed. Mm -hmm. But sooner or later, I think uh, those with the biggest ambitions will realize that they have to compromise. I think that the UN 
a world without the UN is worse off. And I think there is enough realization of that Mm -hmm. in the wider world. So, yeah, I'm kind of hopeful. There will be many frustrations and and shameful episodes Mm -hmm. to come. But we we have avoided World War III so far and developed norms and principles that matter. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I think I definitely share that last sort of cautious optimism for the future and kind of this hope that people do realize that it is better to have the UN and we should use it as much as we can. Right. Um, so let's, let's keep our fingers crossed that your reforms and the, and the work of your organization becomes realized more and more strongly. Well, I think there's a 75th anniversary coming up in mm. five years. If we are able to get a secretary general that is like Kofi Annan and is a strong moral voice, uh, chances are better. So I'm very Mm -hmm. pleased that there is a civil society initiative to make sure that we get a good secretary general forcing Uh, the Security Council to to, to be more transparent about who they're picking and why and uh, and give the General Assembly a chance to have influence too. So it depends on such things, whether there's hope, but... um, you know, I, uh... we'll keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Thank you very much for the interview. Following that, she spoke to UN expert Sam Dawes, who has worked for the UN for over 25 years. He served for three years as first officer to UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, and then spent six years as the executive director of the UN Association of the UK. He has since worked for the British government in UN-related roles and has written widely about the UN. Thank you so much for joining me, Sam. We've both now had an opportunity to listen to Lydia's recording, so we'd like to carry on by commenting on some of the things that she said. Her closing point was one of cautious optimism. She said, I think the Security Council will not be easily reformed, but those states with the biggest ambitions will realise that they have to compromise. So, Sam, what do you make of this? What obstacles do you foresee in the reform of the Security Council? Well, I think Lydia's comments on this were very perceptive. Uh, I suppose the first and biggest obstacle is that to expand the Security Council you need to amend the UN Charter uh, and this is uh, quite a high bar. Uh, What's involved is a two-stage process. You need first of all a vote of two-thirds of the members of the UN General Assembly and then two-thirds of the world's parliaments to ratify any change and at that point the permanent five members have a veto over any change. So what that means is that the two groups that Lydia outlined, the G4 and the Uniting for Consensus group that oppose new permanent members, each of those groups only needs to um, foster a blocking third plus one vote um, in order to block any particular proposal. Uh, So in general, the status quo is favourable to their regional rivals getting the upper hand. Uh, So key to unlocking uh, this will be uh, China currently as opposed to Japan getting a permanent seat and the African Union consensus uh, at Ezzawini that um, that Africa should have two permanent seats with a veto as well as five permanent seats. I suppose the second obstacle is the fact that we've got a, a, a bicameral chamber which reflected the power structure of 1945, so permanent members and non-permanent members. Um, but the power f- structure of the world is much flatter now if you take case of Africa, you might think that uh, South Africa and Nigeria are obvious candidates for African permanent seat, Um, but then there's a number of countries just below them, um, Egypt, Kenya, 
Democratic Republic of the, the Congo, Ethiopia, um, Algeria, who on one criteria or another might have a better case for uh, for representing Africa. So um, uh, similar is similar in other other regions of the world. So I think that's a that's a that's a change. Um, and third is I, I think that we might see a possible split between the G four between the the Western Western countries, Japan and Germany, who at this stage really I think will take any any kind of intermediate solution that they can uh, in terms of a longer duration or renewable seat, and India and to a certain extent Brazil, who want to hold out very much for permanent seat in the future. So I think that we may actually get a dissolution of the G4 at some point um, and a kind of developing country first um, approach taken by, by, by India and Brazil. So I think those are the main splits. Uh, I think in terms of the council's legitimacy, it is a marriage of power and representation. Um, developing countries have a majority on the council. Uh, all resolutions require nine out of fifteen members to to pass them. Um, so I think that there uh, there is a danger of um, uh, feeling that the Security Council is doomed if it uh, if it doesn't reform. Um, I think that in the long term, it, it's absolutely essential that the council's membership reflects the power realities of the world. Um, but in the meantime, the council has done. I think quite a lot of good work in finding ways to involve uh, members of the UN that are not on the council at a particular time in its decisions, such as the friends group of the Secretary General, contact groups on specific conflict situations, and consultations with um, troop contributing countries involving them in, in mandate decisions. Um, since half the council's agenda, over half of the council's agenda, is on Africa, I think there's a particular case, both an efficacy case and a moral case, for giving greater agency to African countries and the African Union in council decisions. So that involves greater consultation, more involvement at the drafting stage, and perhaps more uh, African Union peace operations funded on a case-by-case basis by the UN membership as a, as a whole. We mustn't forget that the council remains the most effective body in the, in the UN system, despite its, its archaic membership. 90% of resolutions are still passed by consensus. And despite the deadlock uh, over Syria and Ukraine, um, the UN's Security Council has been able to move forward um, in a united way on uh, a vast array of conflicts, conflict management, conflict prevention across the world. So indeed, if we're to pick up on that, on that question of conflict prevention and move from the structure of the Security Council itself to the actions that, that it does... Lydia and I briefly spoke about the the expansion of the humanitarian intervention mandate, the, the peacekeeping capacity and the potential for a rapid deployment force. Would you be able to speak a little bit more about the challenges that face the UN in this area and what has changed in the member state approaches to humanitarian questions over the last few decades? Well, I think the first and most obvious challenge is, is that of the huge increase in attacks of, on civilians and the partly connected to that the mass migration uh, that's occurred. 60 million people are now displaced from their homes. Um, that's the largest number since World War II. Um, civilians in Afghanistan, Syria, Nigeria, uh, South Sudan, Iraq, Yemen um, continue to be killed with impunity. Uh, about two weeks ago, there was a, um, the first ever joint statement by uh, Secretary General Ban Ki moon and the head of the Red Cross in Geneva. Uh, and they called for holding armed groups 
accountable for their abuses, for greater protection of civilians, for stopping use of heavy explosive weapons in populated areas, and most essential of all, finding a political solution to the underlying conflict. I, I think what needs to change on migration is, is, is for, for uh, refugees and asylum seekers, greater integration with host countries, so enabling refugees to work, for example, as Malaysia has set a good example of allowing that, for the international community to be more joined up in its treatment of development assistance and humanitarian aid, and, and greater funding. Um, 42,500 people were displaced every day last year. There's new people displaced every day. Um, Ban Ki-moon estimates that we'll need approximately 15 to 20 billion dollars more in order to address it. So a key summit in Istanbul on humanitarian affairs next May will be, be a key indicator of whether those vast sums can be, can be raised at a time of austerity. I suppose further challenges are um, that conflict is increasingly transnational in nature, but UN responses are still largely country-focused, despite the trend towards regional approaches and regional organisations like the African Union becoming more important. Another challenge is that military intervention can be a vital tool, but force itself is necessary but rarely a sufficient response. So force needs to be part of a, a, a wider strategy of winning hearts and minds and integrating post-conflict peace building and conflict prevention. So more creative use of UN human rights machinery, for example, to feed in early warning to the, to the Security Council. And I'm not sure whether the responsibility to protect principle has become too divisive in the light of its citation in connection with Libya and the Russians citing it in justification for their intervention in Ukraine. So some at the UN have pondered whether a new concept of responsible statehood needs to be developed. Then we've got new threats, um, transnational terrorist threats, um, the blowing up of the Russian plane, the tragic events in, in, in Paris over the past week. It's easy to underestimate the, uh, the threat of Al-Qaeda, Daesh, Boko Haram to the UN. They've actively targeted UN um, unarmed UN workers in, in Algiers, in Abuja, in Baghdad, in Mogadishu, in, in Nairobi uh, and elsewhere, uh, making it more costly to deploy such humanitarian workers. And these groups are implacably opposed to the system of nation-states and to international law and international humanitarian law. So they're implacably opposed to the UN, which at its heart is a UN, is an intergovernmental organisation at the heart of international law. So we mustn't underestimate, but also I think we mustn't overestimate the possibility of combating these threats. And I think a key element in doing so will be to, to peel off the supporter base beyond the hardcore jihadis. So in the case of Daesh, that includes the disenfranchised Baathists and the, and the disaffected uh, Sunni tribes people. There's changes in technology, things like cyber attacks and drones raise new challenges for the UN in, in how to apply international humanitarian law to these new ways of waging war. And the changes in member state approaches. Um, I think what's really interesting, looking at the, uh, the, the evolution of the group of 77 developing countries, their approach to, to UN Security Council Chapter 7 resolutions, so robust peacekeeping, peace enforcement. Um, we've seen the 
India on the one side still sticking to a very traditional anti-interventionist stance, but uh, you've got the African Union in Mali and the Democratic Republic of the Congo and, and on Boko Haram, you've got the Arab League on Libya, you've got the Gulf Cooperation Council in relation to Yemen, all supporting more robust peacekeeping and peace enforcement operations. Uh, we've seen a renaissance in UN peacekeeping. The, the, uh, President Obama convened a, a UN summit on peacekeeping in September, and, and China pledged a further 8,000 troops on top, top of the 3,000 that it uh, already contributes, and $100 million uh, in military assistance uh, to the African Union to establish an African standby force, part of a, a broader 10-year UN-China cooperation um, uh, in this uh, in this area, um, uh, which will come to about a billion dollars, so it's significant. Um, the UK, indeed, having confined our contributions to Cyprus for quite a while, um, uh, increasingly uh, have promised now troops for South Sudan and Somalia. I suppose, and lastly, in terms of the challenges on peace and security, is a realization that women need to be involved in in um, addressing and solving conflicts. Um, so, fifteen years. Um, since landmark Security Council Resolution 1325 on, on, on the role of women in peace settlements, we see that now over half peace settlements have provisions relating to women. And a study by the organisation UN Entity, UN Women, showed statistically that when peace, um, peace agreements involve women in the negotiations, they're more likely to be agreed and they're more likely to endure. Um, in the summer of 2014, 40% of ambassadors on the Security Council were women, which was a record. Um, so there's real, real progress, but also the need for, 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 for vigilance and, and, and new innovations. UN Women recommended, for example, that a special international court be, uh, be set up to try peacekeepers in cases of sexual abuse. Brilliant. Thank you for all of that information. There's so much, there's so much in there that we could go down. Um, if, we, if we look now to how the Security Council is looking ahead to the future, how the UN as a whole is. There's the launch of the new post-2015 agenda. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about that and what you think that represents um, with regard to the scope of the Security Council and its mandate? That's a really interesting uh, question. Um, I think the new Sustainable Development Goals are exciting. Uh, for the first time, they included, controversially, a specific goal SDG 16, on the need for peace and accountable institutions. And that's an important recognition that conflict effectively puts development in reverse. And it's a lesson learned from the Millennium Development Goals um, that the countries that fared worse in, in meeting the MDGs were those um, most affected by conflict. So in general, how would you say that the, that the SDGs are an improvement on these MDGs? Could we talk about some of the substantial com substantive comparisons, perhaps? Sure. Um, well, the MDGs were very successful in focusing attention and resources on particular areas, but they, they tended to focus on outputs. For example, uh, the number of children in school or the number of children immunised against disease. And those are really important things to do. The SDGs, in contrast, are universal. They apply both to developed countries and developing countries. And they're designed to, to the 17 of them, they're designed to recognise um, five shifts that are, that are occurring, have occurred and are occurring in international development. Uh, first, that the goals 
will not be realised until everyone, however marginalised, has, uh, um, has had their needs met. So if a person is from a minority or geographically hard to reach place or are disabled, that no one should be left behind. So it's essentially a human rights-based approach compared to the, the MDG approach. Secondly, um, all the SDGs have sustainable development placed at their core. Um, so that includes both tackling climate change, but also bringing about social inclusion. Third, um, the recognition of the need in the new SDGs to transform economies for jobs and inclusive growth. Um, so this is getting the heart of the, the means as well as the ends. So there are goals, new SDGs, for example, for energy and for infrastructure. And fourth, as I mentioned before, there's an SDG on, on building peace and accountable institutions. Um, I've talked about peace, but on the institution side, it's, it's so essential uh, for development to occur, to, to have these underlying things like the rule of law, uh, freedom of speech and the media, political choice and, and access to, to justice and accountable government. And lastly, there's the obvious need, I think, to forge a, a new global partnership, one, that, one that's built in a spirit of solidarity and, and mutual accountability between North and South, and that works with the, the increasingly important other actors like the private sector, like philanthropy, like regional organisations, um, like local government, like civil society. Brilliant. And given those changes, the inclusion, the incorporation of new actors, the coming together of North and South, the, the need for accountability between these different regions, what changes do you think are necessary for to the UN development system such that the SDGs themselves can be achieved? That's a good question. I think what's first necessary is a recognition that the world is changing, that the geography of poverty is changing. 50% of the poor are concentrated in fragile states and that's predicted to reach 80% by 2025. And the UN must become less siloed therefore, in how it approaches uh, development, peace and emergency assistance. I think the UN needs to recognise that traditional aid will become less important than remittances and foreign direct investment, than domestic re resource mobilisation, i.e. taxes raised by developing country governments. And that development will become increasingly about policy choices and, and harnessing new technological, scientific and medical breakthroughs rather than the traditional donor-recipient um, financial relationship. And there must be a data revolution, so harnessing smartphone technology, social media, um, crowdsourcing. And finally, I suppose there needs to be a, a sea change in attitudes. The UN needs to be more open to the power of in innovation, the power of entrepreneur entrepreneurship, to be less hierarchical in the way it's working but also particularly to be listening to the needs and desires of the recipients of development, rather than a whole lot of new set of conditionalities being applied. I'd certainly endorse all of, all of the things that you've said that need to change in that respect, but it seems that there's a long way to go before those things will be achieved. I'd like to finish, if it's OK, with the same question as I, as I posed to Lydia, which is, are you hopeful that the UN can remain fit for purpose? fit for purpose in the face of this rapidly changing world? And if so, why? Well, I am hopeful uh, for, for two reasons. Um, 
First, the UN has shown a tremendous ability over its 70 years to reinvent itself, from the invention of peacekeeping, which is not even mentioned in the UN Charter, to more recent innovations in climate change negotiations with a, a bottom-up approach um, of national pledge contributions leading to the conference in Paris uh, next month. And today, the, the Secretary-General of the UN must navigate not just the nation-states, but a, a multiplicity of actors from human rights um, organisations, billionaire philanthropists, regional organisations, multinational companies on the one side to, to computer hackers or terrorist groups or um, also organised crime syndicates. Um, and the UN is gradually adapting to this reality of, of such a range of different malign and benign actors. Um, secondly, the second reason that I'm hopeful is, is the energy and the competence of the next generation greatly inspires me. So many of the young professionals that I meet combine uh, pragmatism with their idealism. So a, a, desire, a desire to work horizontally, not hierarchically, um, and to do what really works, even if that requires uh, innovation. So the UN must become a place that attracts many of these transformational individuals. And I suppose uh, all of your listeners worldwide uh, can play a key role in ensuring that the UN remains fit for purpose. Uh, the UN is a, a unique, a precious, and a potentially fragile experiment in humankind's very recent history, and its continued survival and flourishing relies on no small part uh, on the continued public advocacy for a fairer, more sustainable and peaceful world, backed by, by cogent arguments for why a strong, credible and effective United Nations is also firmly in the national interest. Brilliant. Well, listeners, I think that was a, a call to action at the end for all of us to do our bit in holding the UN to account, in reforming it and in becoming more involved in the programmes that it pursues. Sam, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. I really appreciate you coming and giving your time and I hope that we have the opportunity to continue this conversation soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for this week. What are your thoughts? Do get involved by visiting our website, www.oxirsoc.com, Facebook page and Twitter feeds, and comment to keep the debate going. Similarly, we are currently accepting submissions for our online blog. So for more information, do visit the website or email sir-editor at irsoc.org. Special thanks to our speakers, Lydia Swart and Sam Dawes, for taking the time to speak with us, and also to our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the University of Kent. Please note that any opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the speakers and host and do not in any way represent Oxford International Relations Society as a whole. Next week, we'll be focusing on the upcoming US general elections. I do hope you can join us then. Goodbye.